As Pastor Robert did note, Pastor is away. He's in Ireland. That's how people in South Carolina pronounce it. Ireland. Maybe not. Maybe it's just you. Might just be me. I don't actually pronounce it that way, but I was just saying. He's in Ireland. I've been watching all his pictures. They've been wonderful to see, making you quite jealous for the island of green. And uh, it's just really cool that our pastor gets to go to these places and, and be an influence outside of just Charleston and Legacy Church. And he gets to go with our blessing and God's blessing. And he gets to go and he gets to minister there with his son, which, you know, I have two, not quite that age yet, but I can imagine that's probably a blessing to pastor's heart to be able to, to go to his son's church where he's a senior pastor and be able to preach and speak to his son's congregation. Because you can remember over the years, Pastor Clayton's been brought here to preach on occasion, right? And now the tables have turned. And so now Pastor Clayton is bringing his daddy in. So that's really cool and that's exciting. But while he is away, we are going to continue in our series called I Love My Bible. And my question to you is, is do you love your Bible? I love my Bible. And this has been an interesting series because I think this is a foundation series. Does that make sense? This is a series that we have to lay a proper foundation of understanding and reading our Bible so that we can begin to grasp and understand what God has in store for us in every other area of life. Amen? Now, I've never been a puzzle person. Anybody here a puzzle person? Jamie, Cindy, never. Robert apparently is a puzzle person. I see you back there. Yeah. We got puzzle people in here. I'm not a puzzle person, mostly because I don't have the patience for it, just like I don't have patience for fishing. Sorry, and Mr. Wally's not here for me to say that. But I'm not a puzzle person, but I know that there are people who love them, and clearly there are people that have raised their hands. There's probably even some who love them so much that when they're done with them, they frame them and they put them on the wall. Have anybody, anybody in here? Jamie? All right. We got one. And that's good. <laughs> My wife and kids love puzzles, okay? So I guess they make up for where I don't like them. And I like to watch them put puzzles together, um, mostly because it's interesting to watch them scratch their heads and, and get frustrated and start throwing puzzle pieces and then give up and then walk away and then I have to encourage them to come back. It's okay. Just, just press through, my children, and you will have the full picture. So while I am not a puzzle person, I have been able to observe some interesting things about puzzles, right? Puzzles come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. I've actually seen 3D puzzles. Have you seen the 3D puzzles? The kind that actually have multiple different pieces and they come together and they actually make like a tower or a building or, or something like that. Those are, those are really cool. So they all come in different numbers of pieces. You have the five piece, which is really good for Avery, my daughter, who's four. I almost said three. She just turned four. And then there's the thousand plus pieces for people who are really, really sadistic. <laughs> and, and those big thousand puzzle pieces come with the itty bitty pieces. They're not just a thousand pieces. They're those little, really small pieces that get lost in the couch and get lost in the kids' toy boxes. And, you know, they, they, every time they put the puzzle together, it's missing another piece. And suddenly the picture becomes less and less clear as to what it's supposed to be. But all of those things, um, there, there's one thing I, I forgot to mention is that 
with every puzzle, the box comes with a picture on the front, right? And that picture is supposed to tell you what the end product is going to look like. You're looking at it, you're like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to have when I get done with this thousand-piece nightmare. But what happens when you're working on this super difficult puzzle and several of those puzzle pieces end up missing? Like I said, in the couch or the kids' toy boxes. You end up with an incomplete picture. Right? It's an incomplete picture. And even worse, when you don't have the box to look at and you're still missing pieces, you get to the end only to discover you don't know what you just worked on. I know what I'd be asking myself, why did I just waste that amount of time on something like this? And yet, many folks treat the Word of God like a puzzle that's missing pieces and the box cover. Real life examples here, folks. Some only read the red letters. You ever heard of those? They're called the red letter Christians. They only read the words of Jesus. Okay? And when you talk to them and you say something out of Genesis, they're like, I don't really care because it's not what Jesus had to talk about. Hmm. Or, there's others that only read the New Testament because, hey, the Old Testament's irrelevant. Jesus came, He changed it all. I don't need the Old Testament. All I need is Matthew the Revelation. That's what's important to me. Or, and I just discovered this group, this is a new one for me, there's the Paul-only Christians. I seriously never heard of these people, but I've come into contact with them in recent months. And apparently, their argument is, as Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, therefore only what he says matters to us Gentiles. Which is terrifying. Not because of what Paul has to say, but the fact that we cut out literally over half the Bible. Over half the Bible. And after all of that, these very same people want to try and convince themselves that they have everything they need to complete the puzzle. But then they wonder when they run into trouble spots in life that they can't seem to figure out how to navigate it. Or they wonder why later in life they walk away from the faith. Perhaps they didn't have a complete puzzle picture to work with. And they feel like they're wasting their time, like I would have felt like if I had been missing all those puzzle pieces, right? Or perhaps they were not given all the puzzle pieces to begin with, right? You can't fault them completely if somebody hasn't taught them correctly. Or perhaps they weren't just taught how to put the puzzle together at all. Or maybe along the way they had the whole picture, but they decided to either hide some pieces or they lost some pieces along the way. And that's what we're going to talk about today in our message title, We Didn't Switch Gods at the Cross. Because there's this notion that the God of the Old Testament is somehow somebody different from the God of the New Testament. And this really impacts us as believers as to how we treat God's Word, if we believe that. And several questions come to mind when I hear that we didn't switch gods at the cross. And those questions are, is the Old Testament God different from the New Testament God? Was Jesus actually in the Old Testament? And what changed at the cross? And my hope is that while we wade into some deep waters here, because I'm not going to pretend that these are easy questions to answer, two of them are. The third one's a little more difficult. 
But it's going to get a little deep, but my hope is that we can answer these questions in a way that's easy and possible for us to know the answers to and be able to better approach God's Word and apply it in our own lives. So we're going to start with the first question. And a quick note, we're going to go through a whole lot of Scripture. Okay, This is I Love My Bible series, and that's what we plan to do. We're going to use the Bible to talk about the Bible. And so there's quite a bit of here, and I'm sorry, Rachel, that I subjected you to all of those Bible verses for creating these um, slides, but I appreciate your willingness to trudge through, because there were a ton. I gave her a bunch to work with. But the first question is this, is the Old Testament God different from the New Testament God? And the short answer is what? No. No, no, no. (laughs) The God in the New Testament is not different from the God of the Old Testament. I don't know how many times I've actually heard come out of believers' mouths, not just unbelievers, I'm talking believers, people who are Christians, say, as they describe God of the Old Testament versus the New Testament, like this, ready? Maybe you've heard this before. Well, Jesus wasn't like God in the Old Testament who was full of wrath and anger and judgment. Ever heard that? Or, maybe you heard this, that scripture was meant for Israel, that's not meant for me. So that doesn't apply to us. And I'm here today to simply say in response to those statements that the God of the New Testament is the exact same one we find in the Old Testament. And I'll just let the Word of God confirm that for you today. Amen? So I got three New Testament verses and three Old Testament verses that tell us exactly who God is and whether or not He changed. So we'll start with Hebrews Chapter 13, verses 7 through 8, and it says this, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when we answer the question of whether or not Jesus was in the Old Testament, that will make more sense. James 1, 17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, which is a name for God, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Okay? Revelation 1.8. I, this is God, in the first person speaking, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. Therefore, what I was at the beginning is who I am now and who I will be at the end. Now, the Old Testament gives us some evidence as well. The psalmist writes in in chapter 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. Meaning, all of eternity. You are the same from before all things were created in beyond. You are God. The psalmist also writes in chapter 102, verses 25 through 27. Of old you said, oh sorry, of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away, but you are the same 
and your years have no end. Or Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, this is first person again, for I, the Lord, do not change. I don't think it gets any simpler than that. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So I think, and that's just six. I looked it up, and there are plenty of other verses to pull from, and I could have spent the entire day demonstrating through Scripture that He says He does not change. And we also know that when Jesus said this, He said, when you have seen Me, you have what? You've seen the Father. I am the Father, I am one. The Father being the dude from the Old Testament. <laughs> this might come as a surprise to you, but Jesus didn't read from the book of Acts. He read from the books of Genesis all the way through. The Old Testament all the way through. Those were his scriptures. So when he's talking about God, that's who he's talking about. Therefore, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And anybody who says otherwise doesn't know God. Which leads us to our next question. And I actually think this is a really interesting question. And that is, was Jesus actually in the Old Testament? Have you ever wondered that? Like, okay, we know that there are several verses throughout Scripture that prophesy of His birth, right? Almost the entire book of Isaiah is about Jesus coming, okay? So we know that there's a lot of prophecies about Jesus, but the question is, was He actually in the Old Testament? Was He there? And the answer is yes. Look at John chapter 1 and then the first five verses. And you'll know this. He says, In the beginning the Word already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him and nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created and His life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness could never extinguish it. Now, here's the interesting thing. John is talking about who? Jesus. So according to John, way back in Genesis chapter 1, every time God says, let there be light, who's the one that makes it happen? Jesus. Because through Him all things were created. He was the Word. When God spoke, Jesus acted. Jesus was there. He's mentioned several times. Every time Jesus, or every time God spoke something into being, Jesus was there. But this isn't the only example from the Old Testament that we see where Jesus appears. So I'm going to give you another one here. Genesis chapter 16, verses 7 through 10 and 13 through 14. Now this is um, Hagar, the maidservant to Sarah who is the wife of Abraham, mother of Ishmael, the one that Sarah and Abraham tried to complete or fulfill God's promise on their own through. It didn't work out too well. And it created a lot of strife, didn't it? And in this particular picture, Hagar has, has run away. And the angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness, along the road to Shur, and the angel said to her, Hagar, Sarai's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she replied. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. And then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. 
And thereafter, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. She also said, have I truly seen the one who sees me? So that well was named Bear, I can't even pronounce it, so we're not going to go there. You can read it. Bear Eliaharue. That was a really bad attempt. Which means the well of the living one who sees me. And it can still be found between Kadesh and Bered. Now, the angel of the Lord here is Jesus. Okay? It's just a title. The, the angel part in the Old Testament translated simply means sent one or messenger. Okay? So the messenger of God. And there's 214 uses of the word angel in this particular form in the Old Testament, and thir- a third of them, one-third of them, refer to Jesus. One-third of them. So one-third of 214 references to angels in the Old Testament are actually talking about Jesus. And the way that we can know if the angel of the Lord is Jesus is usually by the surrounding words in the verses. For instance, in that what we just read, you know, it kept referring to them or to the angel of the Lord. And then it says, notice it says that he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. Do you know of any angel, Gabriel, Michael, or anyone else that can give people children? I mean, Gabriel was there when Mary was impregnated, but it didn't say that Gabriel was the one that did it, right? The angel of the Lord often is found and understood to be Jesus based on the verses around it when it goes from talking about the angel of the Lord to a first person, I am God, and saying things that only God would say. Okay? And there's some other verse or other scriptures that I'm going to read for you from Genesis, Exodus, and Judges that you can see this example a little bit more clearly. So in Genesis 22, verse 11 through 12, it says, At the moment... The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. Now we're talking about Abraham. Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. And then the angel of the Lord says, Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. Okay? This is where it switches. You ready? You have not withheld from me even your son. From me. Why would the angel of the Lord desire that somebody worship him over his son? You see? Exodus 3, 1-4 says, One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. And Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. And when the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush. Okay? Moses, Moses. It said the angel of the Lord was in the bush. And then it goes and says that God calls from the bush. It's the same person there. And then Judges, this was the one that really makes it clear for you. This is the one I was mentioning during worship with Samson. Judges 13, 17 through 21. Then Manoah, who is Samson's father, asked the angel of the Lord, What is your name? 
For when all this comes true, we want to honor you. Now, in the Old Testament, they give God names, okay? Yahweh, Adonai, El Shaddai, different things like that, okay? So the response you get here is an interesting thing. Because this is what he says. Why do you ask my name? The angel of the Lord replied. It is too wonderful for you to understand. We know that God had many names in the Old Testament. Why didn't He just say, I am Yahweh? Why didn't He just say, I am Adonai? I am El Shaddai? I am all the names that you know for God. That's because that name was not yet to be spoken. The name of Jesus, right? The Messiah, Emmanuel. And then Manoah took a young goat and grain offering and offered it on a rock as a sacrifice to the Lord. And as Manoah and his wife watched, the angel of the Lord did an amazing thing. As the flames from the altar shot up toward the sky, the angel of the Lord ascended in the fire, meaning going up into heaven. And when Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell with their faces to the ground. The angel did not appear again to Manoah and his wife. And then Manoah finally realized it was the angel of the Lord. And he said to his wife, we will certainly die for we have seen God. And there's more and more verses I could go through. Countless passages through the Old Testament where Jesus shows up. Like I said, you, you can see in passages when it's talking about God. I, the Lord, or I am the Lord, your God. I, God, you know, we'll say things like that. But the interesting thing is that when, when people come into a physical contact with God, because oftentimes they, say, they describe the angel of the Lord as looking like a human being. And what do we know Jesus to be? God made flesh. God made man. And here he is, he's standing in front of these people, and they don't realize who they're talking to until something happens And suddenly they get this realization, like Samson's daddy, we are going to die because we just saw God. So Jesus was littered through the Old Testament, not just prophesied, he was physically there. In fact, it's claimed that he was the one that came to Abraham in the tent and told him that he would be the one to have a son. I think it's interesting that it was the angel of the Lord that stopped Abraham from sacrificing his son. That's Jesus who knew what that meant, what that signified, because he knew at that time it meant more than just trying to find out if Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son. He knew this was a foreshadow of what would come for him. He knew. And he was the one that stopped it. Those things just make my brain explode trying to think about it or wrap around it. And I know it's not an easy topic or question, and you're probably still wondering, okay, well, Brad... I hear you say all that, but that's a little difficult. You know, the name of Jesus was not mentioned and all these things. But I would encourage you, I can't cover all that today. And because number three, the, the third question is a lot harder than this question to try and to go through. So I'm going to have to spend more time there. But I would encourage you to go back home and to do the research and look it up. There are countless resources that talk about where Jesus showed up in the Old Testament and do a much better job than I do explaining why. <laughs> So I would encourage you, because you have more time to do that at home than I have to do that today. So I'm going to move here to the third question. 
What changed at the cross? I think this is the most important question because this is the question that once we answer it, suddenly makes all those other people who have decided that certain parts of the Bible are irrelevant, makes their argument irrelevant. So to answer this question, we need to look at first two words, continuity and discontinuity. And I'm going to define this for you. So the first one is continuity, which is the unbroken and consistent existence of, or operation of something over a period of time. Or in the case of Scripture, to simply say, it's what continued after Jesus was crucified. Okay? And discontinuity is this. It's a distinct break in physical continuity or sequence of time. Or in the case of Scripture, what did not continue after Jesus was crucified. Okay? So simply put... What's continued and what discontinued, if you want to put it in a little more, you know, when you say discontinuity and continuity, it sounds all, you know, scholastic and, and we can make it a little less academic by saying continued or discontinued. So that's really what those mean. And when Jesus died on the cross, there were some things that continued and there were some things that did not. Unfortunately, in the church, there's a deep misunderstanding with regards to what Jesus changed at the cross. More specifically, what he changed with regard to the law. But I think the best place to start is with the words of Jesus himself. Because he said what he changed. Are you ready? Matthew 5, verse 17. Now I chose the NLT because I like the way it words the last part. And you probably heard it a little bit differently when we get to it. But he says this. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or of the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. And there's a difference between abolish and accomplish. Abolish does away with. Accomplish is what you would say, probably what you've heard in other versions, fulfill the law. And what purpose was the law and the writings of the prophets attempting to accomplish? And that word is another big word, justification. They were attempting to provide justification for man, which justification means the action of declaring or making a person righteous in the sight of God. So the law was attempting to make man right before the Lord using different things like sacrifices and cleansing rituals and all these different things. And so all these, these laws were in existence for man to follow because this is what God said, in order for you to be right with me, this is what you must do. Okay? And what Jesus did when he came to the cross was he fulfilled that purpose, meaning he became the justification for us, removing the, the purpose of the law, meaning the, the, what happens when you break the law, which Romans tells us is what? For the wages of sin is death. So Jesus changed the repercussion of the law. And his, his own word says he did not abolish the law. He didn't come to do away with it. He came to fulfill it, to fulfill its purpose. But the problem is, is that much of the church thinks that he came to abolish it. When you talk to people and you, you mention anything from the Old Testament and you give a, a, a command or a precept and they look at you and they go, well, that's all well and good, but I'm under grace. 
And that's a misunderstanding and a misapplication of what Jesus did on the cross. That doesn't mean that God doesn't still have expectations, right? Or that he doesn't still have an idea of how we should do things. If that was the case, why do we quote the Ten Commandments? If we're just under grace, those don't matter, right? Why even worry? Why even bother? In other words, we are not saved by the law. The law does not save us. Adhering to the law does not provide our salvation. That doesn't mean it's not good for us. It just means we're not going to be saved by adhering to it word for word. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Now, the trick, though, is understanding how we interpret what in the Old Testament still applies to us. That's where it starts to get muddy and thick and a little more difficult to wade through. And that's what I'm going to attempt to do here in the next few minutes. Um, but, for instance, in the Old Testament, it tells us not to eat certain kinds of foods. Okay? It tells us not to eat shellfish or pork or all these different things. However, God himself changed the dietary commands. Right? And he did it in actually two different places within the New Testament. First, he did it to Peter in Acts chapter 10. He says, No, Lord, Peter declared, I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. But the voice spoke again, being God, Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. And then later in 1 Timothy, Paul says this. He says, Since everything... God created is good, we should not reject any of it, but receive it with thanks. For we know it is made acceptable by the word of God and prayer. Okay? So God changed the dietary restrictions on us. Okay? So we are not held to those same standards per se. Uh, that's not to say that eating pork necessarily is good for you. There are probably scientific evidences showing that certain types of foods aren't as good for you as others. That doesn't mean God is prohibiting you from it. Right? I like pork. I like it a lot. I like bacon, ham. And everybody in here is on the fast going, I hate you, shut up, shut up. But clearly God made the eating of certain foods that were prohibited by the Old Testament laws clean. And all the things, you know, people, people want to jump on you when you start quoting Old Testament laws, especially around, like, sexual purity, right? Because in Leviticus, within, like, one chapter, there's a bunch of verses that talk about shellfish and, and not wearing certain types of clothes, and then it says, and men should not sleep with men and women with women. And when you quote that, when they look at you, you go, well, I see you wearing polyester, or I see that you're scarfing down some shrimp. So therefore, your argument is, is null. And the, the truth is, no, it's not. You don't understand what Jesus changed at the cross. Right? But now you know. Now you know. And so if anybody ever argues that with you, you can look at them and say, well, let me show you what Jesus and God did in the New Testament, which makes it okay for me to do this. But you may ask, what about the other laws in the Old Testament? Aren't there like 600 laws and commands? Yes, there really are a lot of commands and laws in the Old Testament, and not just 10. <laughs> and the question we ask is, how will I know which ones are still applicable? 
Interpreting Old Testament law can become tedious. Okay, it's, it's hard because if you're talking 600 commands, you're going to go through the entire Old Testament, you're going to look at each command, and you're going to say, okay, how does this still apply to me? That can become tedious and burdensome. And the answer here is not go back and do everything you can to find out what laws, you know. But as we're reading Scripture, as we're learning about God, and we stumble upon verses with precepts and commands, we can now learn how to interpret that and as to how that applies to us, right? So interpreting the Old Testament can be indeed uh, a difficult thing. It is a good practice to explore it and to see what he commanded us. But there's a simple rule that I think we can remember in order for us to begin learning how to interpret the law better. And it's this. If the New Testament specifically addresses it and changes it, it's a sure sign that any laws that would fall in that category no longer apply. Does that make sense? In other words... If Jesus or any of the New Testament disciples and their writings, Matthew through Revelation, if they touch on any of the laws and they changed it, or you see that it was changed through God or whatever purposes, then it's a sure bet that when we come across certain commands in the Old Testament that would fall into those types of categories, that they probably do not apply. Or vice versa. If we see, you know... When you talk about sexual purity, we'll just go with that one just because it's a common one. And everybody starts talking about, well, the Bible says man should not lay with man and woman should not lay with woman. And they look at you and say, well, Jesus never said that. Well, you're right. He never specifically called that out. But Paul did a lot. And Jesus affirmed what marriage was when they were asking him about divorce. So therefore, it was not changed. And that standard is still applicable to us today. Okay? Does that make, is it beginning to be a little clearer as to how we can understand when certain things apply and when certain things don't? So, what kind of laws were discontinued? And to that I would say primarily ceremonial laws. Things like the sacrificial system. Which we know the sacrificial system was for what purpose? To justify man. Therefore, it's not needed. We're not supposed to go and kill lambs or doves or whatever other creatures we were commanded to in the Old Testament for certain sins because there were different creatures for different sins. We don't have to do that because what? Jesus accomplished that on the cross. Therefore, we no longer have to do that. It also includes things like cleansing laws. If you remember back during Christmas and I was talking about Bethlehem and what Mary and Joseph had to go through before they could go to the temple to dedicate Jesus to the Lord, they had to go through this whole cleansing process that's outlined in the Old Testament, right? Has anybody followed that? I haven't, and I've had four children. So I've either messed up four times, or it doesn't apply. And the answer is it doesn't apply, because the reason that was there was to make us clean before God. And that's no longer necessary, because Jesus made us clean before God when He stood in our place on the cross. And to clarify a little further, these laws, like sacrificial system, cleansing laws, dietary laws especially, were laws that were specifically set for Israel to set them apart as a nation. Okay? And these were laws and commands that God gave to Israel for how man can be justified to God for their sin. Okay? So they were specifically set up for a reason. And clearly, many of these were fulfilled in Jesus through the cross. And when he died on the cross, he also changed the death penalty. Like I mentioned, 
you know, Romans says, for the wages of sin is death. Okay? Jesus changed all the laws that have to do with, you know, certain penalties. All right? We don't stone people for certain things now. We don't kill people. There is, there's not a death penalty for much except for what? Murder. Okay? And that's because Jesus changed that. Because sin has its own wage, and according to Romans 6.23, that is death. And Jesus took that judgment upon Himself, and now capital punishment is reserved strictly for the state or the civil governments to carry out. Right? Because before, when you looked at the Old Testament, it wasn't necessarily the government that carried out the death penalty, was it? It was the priests. You, you don't see me and pastor finding you doing something and stoning you, right? Because it's not our job. But the state has laws, right? Civil governments have laws. Thou shalt not murder. It's kind of interesting. They want to say God has nothing to do with us, yet one of the big deals that they deal with is murder. And they think it's wrong because it's in the Bible and God put it in us and we don't kill people because it's wrong. So those are all the things that God has, has taken and discontinued. So you can kind of lump them all together in ceremonial laws. Now what still applies? And I would, I would call that category the moral and civil laws or simply judicial laws. And these would be laws and commands and precepts that pertain to the governance of yourself, of your home, and of society or of the state, you know, of your city of your state, of your, your federal government, okay? Those things, they still apply. Things like honor your father and mother, which is the fifth commandment in Exodus chapter 20. Or do not murder, which is the sixth commandment in Exodus chapter 20. Or select from all the people some capable, honest men who fear God and hate bribes. Appoint them as leaders over groups of 1,000 and 100, 50 and 10, which is Exodus 18.21 regarding civil government, Okay? Those things still apply. It's interesting when, and this is my only political statement for today, okay? Mark it. That's my only one. I don't want to go too deep into it. But throughout the election, Pastor and I would talk about Exodus 18.21 as being the standard that God has for selecting men for government, right? And the argument that we were always met with was this. That was for Israel, not for me. And yet, two chapters later, you have the Ten Commandments. And those still apply to them, apparently. See what I'm saying? We don't understand how to interpret the Bible to be able to say things like that. And my whole point is this, that these are simple breakdowns and examples. They by no means cover all 600 plus commands in the Old Testament, okay? You can go through, you'll learn to see them, you'll, you'll begin to, to develop discernment with regards to what God changed on the cross. You know, in the Old Testament, there are commands that were specific to people, okay? Like when he said to Samuel, go and anoint David. We're not going around anointing every David we know, right? Why? Because that was specific for Samuel and that was specific for David, it was a command by God, but it's not a command that's applicable to me because it was applicable to Samuel at a specific time, a specific place, and for a specific person. One thing that we need to keep in mind 
as well as how we determine if something that was commanded to Israel as a nation is applicable to us as Gentiles. Not simply what we considered law. If you recall, Israel was established as a nation to be an example to all nations. That was their purpose. They were not simply set apart to just be Israel. God said they were to be an example to all the nations. Meaning, this is what God says is the standard for nation to be. Right? So if that's the case... When we see God commanding to Israel laws and commands that pertain to government at various levels, be it yourself, your home, or your civil government, it is safe to bet, or it's a safe bet, that these precepts and commands and laws outlined for Israel would also be good for us. Right? If it's good for Israel, it must be good for us. And they were his people. Some might say, but we aren't Aren't we under grace and not the law? And to that I would just simply say, yes, we are under grace as it relates to our justification for sin, as it relates to our salvation only. But the law still has great application in our life, especially in the area of morality and civil government. And when I say civil government, I'm not just talking about president or governor or mayor. I'm talking about how you govern your home, how you govern yourself, right? When it says, train up a child in the way he should go so that when they grow old, they should never depart from it, that's a good command for you. Because why? It's good self-governance for your child to learn. It's not just something that Israel was doing for their kids. It's something we should be doing for our kids too. Now last week... Pastor spoke of the need to be able to find application of Scripture for all areas for our life. And this is extremely hard when we do not have the whole picture of the Bible to work with. Or when all the pieces of the puzzle are missing. Or some of the pieces of the puzzle are missing. Or an understanding of how the pieces of the puzzles fit together. I watch my Avery try to put puzzle pieces together and she wants to put pieces that don't even remotely go next to each other. Daddy, it, 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 it will work! No, it won't. <laughs> You've got to find the right puzzle piece to fit with the right puzzle piece. They don't all just snap together. And so it's hard. It's like trying to understand an iceberg by examining what's above the surface. And everybody knows, including the people on the Titanic knows, there's more below the surface, right? Way more below the surface. And if we want a complete picture for how we can approach every area of life biblically, we have to learn to see the Bible, both old and new, as two halves of one picture. They're not separate. You can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. You can't understand the Old Testament without the New Testament. We wouldn't have the cross without Genesis. We wouldn't have Paul and his message of grace without the Old Testament and their teachings of the law. And the list could go on. They complement each other. They complete each other. It's like, Jer- you complete me. You complete me. And once we begin to understand exactly what Jesus does through the cross, and that the Bible was meant to be a whole picture, not a half or a piece or the red letters only, it opens up a door to a whole world a biblical precept and understanding that benefit us as a people. So when we're 
studying the Old Testament and we're not sure if a precept, law, or command is applicable, it's best just to step back. Don't immediately go, this doesn't apply because it's in the Old Testament. That's not the answer. That is not the answer. Step back. Ask your questions. Does the New Testament address this? And if so, did it change it? If it didn't change it, why not? Then we can begin to say, okay, if it didn't change it or didn't, how does this apply to me? And I think this is just a deep, a very important topic that most Christians in America have very little understanding of. And we just attack the Scriptures and we just automatically assume Jesus changed everything on the cross. And that's just not the answer. And then we wonder why our society flounders out of control because the church doesn't even have an understanding of what God wants from a society. So here we are, church. We're almost done with the sermon series. Next week, Pastor is, is going to be here. He's going to give our final I Love My Bible series. And I'll try not to... I, I, I don't have a great... Uh, foresight into what he's coming with, but I know that in February we're going to move into the topic of revival. And I love revival. Amen? Amen. And you know what? Revival comes with understanding. When we love our Bible, not because this is God. Is the Bible God? No. No, the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible has authority not because of the Bible. The Bible has authority but because of who the author is. That's why we love the Bible. That's why it's important. That's why we can't take it and dissect the pieces we don't like out of it because it makes us uncomfortable. So I think as we develop as a church and our understanding of Scripture... And we begin to apply this in our own personal study. How much growth is going to take place in legacy just in our understanding of God's Word? Because I think God wants us to know these things. He doesn't want us just to simply write them off. He put them there for a reason. There's a purpose for everything that God says and does. And we need to understand those purposes and apply those purposes. And then maybe revival will come as we begin to grow humble before the Lord and we begin to understand His ways a little bit. We won't understand all His ways because He's way, way above us. But that's, that's where the future is heading. I believe toward revival. Amen? Amen. I think, as Pastor Roberts pointed out, in our prayer time and in our worship time and in the message and all these different things, that there's something stirring. There's something being stirred below the surface. And, you know, when you're digging a well, you don't just dig down five feet and go, this should be deep enough, why is there no water? When do you stop digging? When you hit water. That's when revival comes. You don't just stop digging. You keep digging. You keep digging until the water comes. And that's what we're doing. I think that's what's stirring. I think we're digging. We've broken through some deep, dark, and, and tough 
things underneath the surface. There may be yet some more layers to break through. Who knows? Only God knows. But I'm excited. And I hope you are